welcome to another episode of The Drip, the podcast where four academics of color sit around and discuss great books. Each episode features a free-flowing conversation about one book that leads us to a broader conversation about race, culture, politics, all the things that keep us gabbing when we're hanging out in coffee shops or in each other's homes or when we're each really still in our own homes because we're trying to keep ourselves or loved ones and even people we don't like safe and healthy. But perhaps that mythical herd immunity is somewhere on the way. Um, so yay for that. But also, shout out to the people who took to the streets in Brooklyn Center to grieve and rage for Dante Wright. And shout out to the people who've been holding down space at George Floyd Square for the past year and are going to continue to do so for at least the next few months. And defund, dismantle, and abolish the police. I'm Anita Chikatur, the host for the show, and I teach in the Department of Educational Studies at Carleton College. Uh, Todd? My name is Todd Lawrence. I teach uh, African-American literature, folklore, and cultural studies in the Department of English at the University of St. Thomas. Thank you. Adriana? I'm Adriana Estel. I teach English and American Studies at Carleton College. And this week I'm teaching Selena. And it would have been Selena's 50th birthday this week. Wow. Oh, thanks. Wow. Uh, how, how, how old am I? <laughs> no comments. Uh, <laughs> too old. Too old. <laughs> Old enough, old enough. <laughs> Crystal. Hey, everyone. This is Crystal Moten. I'm a public historian working at a museum in D.C. focusing on African-American material culture. Ooh, thank you. All right. So we're all excited because today we are discussing Sister Soldier's first novel, The Coldest Winter Ever. Sister Soldier, also known as Lisa Williamson, is a community activist, author, and speaker who's written numerous books, including five national bestsellers. In 2007, she became a New York Times bestseller, bestselling author and since has charted in the top 10 of the New York Times list three times over. So besides The Coldest Winter Ever, which is what we're talking about today, which has sold over 2 million copies to date, she has written three novels based on the character of Midnight, who appears in this novel, and also about the character of Portia Santiago, who's the sister of Winter Santiago, the protagonist of the coldest winter ever. Um, her nonfiction book, No Disrespect, is also a bestseller. The sequel to The Coldest Winter Ever, Life After Death, was recently released. And we had initially thought that we were going to maybe do that as our next book, but we decided uh, not to read it because we wanted to get to some other books. Many people, many of you, might have heard of Sister Soldier because of the heated conversation uh, that she had with Bill Clinton, an encounter that Omni and Wynant in their book, Racial Formation, described as such. To win the Democratic nomination in 1992, Clinton spanked a symbolic Negro. So keeping all that in mind, just a reminder, a spoiler alert, before we dig in, just a reminder that we, when we discuss our books, we will talk about everything. As you know, we do call ourselves the All Spoilers Collective, so consider this your perpetual, universal, all-encompassing spoiler alerts. In other words, we're all about the spoilers not about the summaries. No summary. No summaries. Not at all. So I know this was not everybody's first time reading this book, but this was my first time reading the book. And I think what I found... You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. So appealing is, of course, Winter, right? She is so appealing and so funny and so righteous in her own way. But I think I mostly kind of really loved her kind of F you to kind of all these like middle class notions of morality. Um, and I wanted to start off maybe a couple of quotes from her and then maybe um, turn it over to Todd to maybe talk a little bit about, right, you were the one who were like, we're really interested in kind of reading and talking about this book. Um, okay, so the first quote is on page 25. 
and she's like hanging out with her mom. Um, and she says, mommy was pretty all right. A definite advantage to having babies at young age. You get to chill with your moms like she's your sister or something. Fuck all those old stiff bastards complaining about teenage pregnancy, this and that. Me and my moms could party together. Nobody would ever know that she was my mom's. I got some shit in the closet that looks better on her than it does on me. <laughs> um, and then the second one is where she's talking about her dad. And this is after her dad um, basically gets uh, arrested, right? And she says, um, so the lawyer's kind of saying that the uh, he, her dad is being accused of a lot of it, right? Like conspiracy, murder, weapons, money laundering, tax evasion. And then Winter says, it was ridiculous to me. People don't understand Santiago's world. It's business. Nobody kept a drug dealer's business in check, but the dealer himself and the team he set up. There has to be punishment for those within the team who test too much and step out of line. There has to be punishment for outsiders who attack the, diff attack the business. Violations have to be responded to. Otherwise, the business don't flow correctly and people try to take advantage. They shouldn't be able to barge into our business and force their rules on us. Not when Santiago knew his workers better than anybody from the outside. Everybody in this game understood what he was dealing with. Nobody forced them into this business. They understood the risks. And besides, the drug dealers helped America to be rich. So I just thought that was like interesting sort of thinking about that. And I was also thinking about sort of the, you know, the drug aspect of it and how it's not like, you know, with the opioid crisis, we've been going around like around to gum medical doctors who like prescribe those drugs and like raiding their homes in the middle of the night, right? Because they are, if we're thinking about like, oh, this is because like you're damaging people, like there were all they've been also damaging people, right? So anyway, so that's what I found so appealing about her. So Todd, do you want to tell us a little bit about why you wanted us to read this book? Oh, well, I um, I think it's an amazing book. And I um, I probably first, I must have first read this at the, you know, beginning of the 21st century. So around, because it was, isn't that crazy to say? Right. <laughs> the book came out oh, in 1999, okay. which I forgot to mention. Right. Yeah. So it came out in 99. I think I probably, because I was doing a lot of work on, you know, like, um, pimp novels and narratives and things like that so i was reading a lot of stuff about you know the streets and um and i came across this book somehow and i read it and i think maybe that i was expecting it not to be sort of good because i think i was sort of thinking you know i was, I was experiencing books that were books that had basically been kind of like discarded or overlooked by you know sort of literary community right like Donald Goins and Iceberg Slim stuff, you know, like that kind of sort of even Chester Himes to a certain extent. And, and uh, this book, I read it and I just couldn't put it down. And I just thought it was so engaging and, and the character, as you mentioned, Anita was so captivating. And uh, so it just sort of stayed in my head. And then, you know, it really did start to get a lot of attention. People were reading it if you read any of the stuff about this book or even some of the stuff that's in the back, if you have this special re-released uh, re, um, uh, re edition, the people are passing this book around. I mean, it became like a kind of phenomena in the black community. And even, you, you know, I read about people um, that they were re having students read this in junior high and stuff like that. Like, it seems like that might've been a little too, too young, but anyway, it was really having an, an impact on people because of this character. So coming back to it all these years later, um, I read it slightly different, you know, so I am sort of like, oh, I, I don't remember that, you know, there, you know, we talked about before we started to record that there is a lot of uh, homophobia in the book. Um, there is, 
I mean, there's there's a lot of sort of questionable things in the book, but there's so much other stuff that's really like, uh, it's it's unusual to see a female character like this, you know. And I think that's like maybe what's so captivating and and is good. Like I love to the idea of young black men reading this book yeah. and sort of like seeing a, a strong female character like this. There are lots of different kinds of strong female characters that can be represented in literature, but this is one too. You know, she's bad, man. She's not afraid. She's smart. Um, she is like fearless. I mean, she is all of those things and um, she's just as bad as you. Like, don't try to cross her. You know what I'm saying? Because she's going to come after you, you know? And, and I, I just sort of love that... Um, that that aspect of her character so yeah my you know the first i think i was once you guys agreed to read it i was sort of like oh my god what have i done (laughs) (laughs) but then i started rereading it and those especially those first hundred pages which i basically sat down and read in one evening and i was just like oh my god this i think i sent you guys a text it's like this is just as good as i remember um so yeah I, i it did sort of really captivate me again took me right back to that moment when i first you know discovered it i'm doing the air quotes Mm -hmm. and thought oh my god everyone needs to read this book um it's sort of like uh it's 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 like blanche on the lamb but not quite blanche on the lamb because to me like blanche on the lamb holds a special place in my heart because but it does a lot of the same things and when i was you know working and and on my research at the time I was trying to make an argument for how books that um, that contain a lot of sort of offensive material could also, like, let's say, render a, a, a capitalist a critique of capitalism, for example, or could render a, a critique of like oppressive, you know, sort of uh, belief structures. Just quickly, and I hope maybe you, Adriana, Tristan will pick up on this, but I am curious. I mean, like, she's fifteen when the book starts, so why not read it in middle school? <laughs> Because little kids don't need to be reading about sex. No, I don't really mean that, but I think that's what I was just, thinking. I don't know. I mean, yeah. no, I mean, he gets at this broader point about, like, how do we read this book where this young woman is, like, very much in charge of her own sexuality, has, like, very specific sexual desires, and, right, is able to, like, name them explicitly and talk about what she wants. And I think that's actually a really good message to give young folks. I I think what's challenging for me about the novel, though, is that, um, you know, it's not just about the sexuality. Like, Todd, you're suggesting that, like, when you look at it overall, that the novel provides us with a critique of capitalism. But I think that's actually a pretty hard critique to locate. Well, I wasn't necessarily saying this one did. I was saying other books did. I think there are critiques in this one. But yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm, I mean, and, and I think that's that's what I'm saying, right? Like, I, I think, like, at its heart, what the novel wants to do is um, set up Winter as someone who's on a wrong path. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. path actually includes the sexuality. It includes the the, the capitalism, the, the use of designer clothes as a fill-in, right? Sister Solja, who appears as a character, is kind of like the road uh, that, you know, she's the right path. She's the light. Mm-hmm. Um, and Winter never actually manages to take that path. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, like, you never, you know, except for the fact that she's in jail by the end. But that also, like, honestly, it doesn't seem like her fault. Like, I do feel like that's totally Bullet's fault. Mm-hmm. So you don't get a moment in the novel where 
you know, as a reader, it, you get closure on the kind of like, oh, it's because she was on the wrong path. I mean, in some ways, yes, but in some ways she, I mean, to this is so disorganized what I'm saying, by the way, but like to get back to what Anita was saying, like, I think she, what's really impressive about her is she knows where power's located. Mm -hmm. Power's mm -hmm. located with the men. Mm -hmm. If power's located there, I know what I have to do to go get it. Mm -hmm. And so everything that she does is after that power, which makes mm -hmm. sense because she's essentially left powerless very early on in the novel. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's what I find impressive, but also challenging because the ways that she goes after power and the kind of power that she finds most within her reach is of course like a, it, it comes with a lot of downsides. I mean, her mother becomes a crack addict. Um, and the last time we see her mother, she's, she's dead. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she she's dead in a way where she's unrecognizable to her unrecognizable. husband. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. yeah I, I was trying to think um, about a comment after all of those comments. But I think one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is about how many of the women, the characters, the female characters in the book, they get implicated just for being associated mm -hmm. with um, with many times the male characters. Um, and so yeah. they they, um, you know, they face these repercussions that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're not of their own choosing, but sometimes because they are in these cir circumstances, they face the punishment for. And I think that when I think about the 1990s and the rise mm -hmm. of mass incarceration mm -hmm. and the war on drugs, um, and you see how many times that's painted as something that affects men. Mm -hmm. I think in this book, you see all along that it affects families and women mm -hmm. and children. And there's no way to really think about the war on drugs or mass incarceration without thinking about, you know, families and children and women, even though we typically think about it in terms of the effect it's had on black men in, in communities around the nation. Um, yeah. But that's just one thought I was thinking about, especially in thinking about Sister Soja's um, goal, if, and if you read the essay at the end of the book and kind of exposing um, the, the, the the inner workings of this world to a broader public, right? So, so seeing the inner workings of this. Um, but I also was thinking about, especially because Sister Soja used to be, uh, before she wrote this book, she was a hip hop artist with Public Enemy. And so thinking about also how this book does a little bit of what hip hop does, right? And exposing kind of the everyday right, of the streets, of people's thinking about how to make it, um, about their interactions with, with the authorities, including the police, and how even the police are implicated in all of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I've, a lot of thoughts are kind of just swirling in my mind uh, about this book and why, what, like how we can learn so much from it, even if we don't necessarily agree with everything that is portrayed. I think I think it is kind of like I'm I'm gonna say I think it's sort of the quintessential novel of the sort of hip hop golden age. You know, like it it really does capture that aspect of it. And I think what you said, Crystal, was really great about you know how it shows the impact on women of this you know of of the sort of drug um, situation, crack, and and all of that. And this is like a huge concern. Like you were, you know, mentioning Sister Soldier as a as a member of um, of Public Enemy, and like I'm thinking like some of those early songs from Public Enemy, like Night of the Living Bassheads, you know, and like these songs which were about the impact of crack on the black community. And if we're, you know, 
if there, if we're th- thinking about and which I think we are, and, and Adriano has already sort of talked about this, but we're thinking about ways that the the novel accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. This is one of those things, which is to show us, I think, um, what what the what drugs and and cracking what it does to families, what it does to people in the streets. I mean, pretty much everybody who we get introduced to is in some ways in, impacted negatively. Okay by drugs by the end of the novel. And this family, I mean, I think of them at the mother's funeral and kind of they've all been dispersed, you know, in, in these to these different sort of um, things that they had to overcome or whatever. And, and you know, the two, you know, the two strongest in prison, you know, like, so it really does, kind of, that's one thing it does really yeah, accomplish. Right, yeah. um, two things. So one, I think to Crystal's point, right, I think there's a point when uh, basically... Uh, Mrs. Santiago gets put in jail, right? Um, and this is like 6970. And Winter says, so when does spending your husband's money become a crime? If it were, then more than half the women in this whole country would be locked down, right? So kind of thinking about the right the hypocrisy right. of sort of the system. So I actually think that the critique of like maybe racialized capitalism is actually mm-hmm. not that hard to find, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think there's sort of ways in which she sort of shows the devastating effects on drugs without sort of condemning the people who are like involved in that trade because right, there's like a really right. good reason for why, right? And like that passage that I read about her dad, right? And she goes on to say, like he employed half the men in the neighborhood, right? So kind mm-hmm. of thinking about that. So I think there's actually this intriguing way in which, you know, there's sort of both things happening, right? So kind of like critiquing the effects and like, especially through like the character of the mom, I think, right? Who sort of has this like very uh, tough thing. And then I think, obviously people are naming Jinx, but at the same time, like not critiquing the people who are playing the game because the game's already rigged for them. Right, 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 right. Because so I think, you know, just to add on to that, Santiago is, he he's, he's basically destroyed by the end of the novel. But I don't think we're supposed to see him as a bad person. I mean, he is a person who has built something that has fallen apart because the thing itself is corrupt, right? Mm-hmm. But that was an option that he had. I mean, I think we're supposed yeah. to see him as a man with character and as a, a, a man who's trying to take care of his family and as a man who's you know doing these things for the right reasons, but the things are wrong that he's doing. I mean, I think that's what the book is sort of... I don't know that Winter sees it as wrong, right? And I'm starting to no, think she the where she says like... I think even though he got caught, like having a life that's of like 20 years that was amazing is better than living a whole life that's like... She thinks he's the greatest (laughs) person who's ever lived and she's following in his footsteps, like studying his moves. She wants to be just like... And she is in a lot of ways just like him. And I think the same thing happens as a reader. You have the same sort of feeling for her that you have for him, Mm -hmm. which is sure, these bad things are happening and had she made different choices, things would have been different. But it's not because she's a bad person. Um, I don't. You don't see her as evil, and and I I don't. If the if the if the intention was to create, you know, I was thinking before when you were you were talking at the beginning, Adriana. I was thinking of you know this is a cautionary tale. This is like it's even meant to be like a morality t- tale, like you know those sort of old morality tales where and everything in those in those tales from the Middle Ages is sort of like set up like just straight, you know, like you can see how someone will be punished for the sins that they commit. It's very um, easily identifiable. It all lines up very, very neatly. And I think there might be sort of an attempt at that here, but the the very sort of, <laughs> the, the sort of, not it's not even just the likability mm. of the characters, it's the complexity of the situation mm-hmm. and the corruption of the institutions which 
mm-hmm. are sort of uh, sort of guarding against the badness in the book, like the cops, mm-hmm. the prison system, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the economy in general, which means that you have to have money to live. Yep. All those things are being critiqued as well, mm-hmm. even if it's mm-hmm. not the intention of the author. Right. I don't know if it is or not. Right. No, no, I, th- I think that's a really good point. Um, you know, at the end, um, you know, close to the end of the novel, you know, Winter's been trying to make sense of why her dad was brought down, right? Like what exactly was the, you know, because she knew that all of the people he employed were super loyal. Um, and, you know, Bullet eventually tells her the story, right? Which does involve the police essentially having mm-hmm. been corrupt, having been participating in the drug running um, and having to cover their asses. And in order to do that, basically like seeding uh, this kind of like uh, war between, um, I can't remember what they're called, but the younger kind of like yeah. mm-hmm. um, group and, and Ricky Santiago's. Um, so I, I think that's actually really apt. I think what, what for me, it, I'm probably super influenced by reading Life After Death first, which I was not supposed to. You got to talk because, about that. And I'll talk about that later. But because of that, you know, like I, I think it made me expect a greater arc of, of, of shift in midnight um, than, than we necessarily get in here. Winter? In, see, in winter. <laughs> Why am I like, but there's so many characters, character, but yeah, yes. <laughs> for some reason, their names are like that for me right now. Win mid, win mid. Um, take that out, please, Todd, of the final podcast. <laughs> Can't do it. Sorry. <laughs> um, but, but, but I was going to say actually that Midnight is interesting because he's such an elusive character for um, Winter, mm-hmm. um, an adorate, you know, just adored from the beginning, like a super crush both as he works for her father and then as he separates from and becomes, you know, we kind of see him moving out of the drug trade and um, finding a more, you know, what Sister Soldier would see as a more moral and good life. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, I have, to, I have to think, for Winter, that's, you know, like he's still that big crush, even in that shift. So mm-hmm. that's interesting to me, thinking about where her love engages, where her desire engages. And how that's about both what she needs, but also what she doesn't even know she needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, actually, I was thinking then about the, the letters that she reads, right, between mm-hmm. uh, Midnight Bilal and um, Sister Soldier, which I think is like interesting because I think in some ways, um, you know, Sister Soldier kind of talks about how she had all these somewhat, right, moralistic sort of reasons for why she wrote this novel. But I feel like she's so generous to her characters that they're able to speak for themselves. So in some ways, it sort of exceeds maybe sort of what she had aimed for him, right? Kind of like in those letters, like, you know, like he has like really good reasons for why he says he's doing like what he's doing. And even though like Sister Soldier kind of critiques that and like, right, in her exchange, but I, I think maybe that's um, how I think about it, right? That she's like this generous, like she just knows her characters well mm-hmm. enough to like give them room to be themselves in a way that, you know, so maybe they, there isn't sort of this neat or at all, right? Like redemption arc in the at least in this this novel, maybe there is in Life After Death. I don't know. I, I think that's a really great point, you know, that both this sort of gener- – she's very generous to her characters and it feels like she knows them. I mean, I can think of a version of this novel that has the that had the that would have had the intention of being you know didactic right that wouldn't do those things like that's one way that you could make these points is to like basically make winter pretty shallow and make her get punished and make it really clear to see that she's being punished because she's a bad person or whatever i mean winter she betrays a few people 
mm-hmm. in the novel. There's no question. Like a, like a couple of friends. I mean, it's pretty pretty terrible when she kind of turns her back on her mother. Um, you know, so there are, she definitely has moments where she comes up short. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in terms of like her sort of moral strength or whatever. But mm-hmm. we always see why she does those things. Like it's not. It's never just sort of like, well, this is just a function of her character. We always understand the logic for mm-hmm. the decisions that she's making, and often it's she herself who's telling us that right. directly, right? Right. You know, so we don't we don't have to like sit there yes. and, and sort yeah. of guess mm-hmm. why she's doing what she's doing. I mean, I think maybe the only thing sometimes that I actually I, I don't think there's anything she does where I, I think, well, why is she doing that? Right. There are times when she does stuff, and I thought. I wish you wouldn't do that. You right. know, like, why are you so obsessed with, you know, buying all these expensive clothes? Well, we know why she is right. because of what Adriana said earlier, men are the source of power in order to get them or to be able to control them. Clothes are the way like presentation of the body is the way to do that. Right. That's the way she understands it. But I, I think that's, I think you're right. You know, so I have to sort of, in some ways, I think before I was sort of suggesting that this is not like it's, you know, Sister Soldier's not a like amazing author or something like that. But in a way she is because she's created a character who actually sort of transcends in some ways maybe what Sister Soldier was trying to do and has become something beyond what the novel ostensibly is. And we know that because she tells us, right? Like Sister Soldier <laughs> in the you know, in all the stuff in the back of you got the new edition, talks about what she was trying to do with the book. And I think the book like transcends that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes beyond that in a lot of ways. So Crystal, I was wondering if you could, like I was reading this, there's a New Yorker review in the back and it sort of, it says, winter is nasty, spoiled and almost unbelievably libidinous. So what I can't say. And it's ample evidence of the author's talent that she's also deeply sympathetic. And you were sort of picking up on that word kind of nasty and like um, maybe like why that's maybe a problematic term to use. Can you say more about that? Well, I think when I read that quote, I just was curious about what the New Yorker meant by nasty, especially when we think of, um, you know, how Sister Soja writes winter, right? In the sense that actually she's immaculate. <laughs> she writes this, this character that, um, you know, is mm-hmm. immaculate, it's, it's flawless in her presentation and, you know, her behavior, right? And so, you know, this word nasty to me seems like it's a coded word, um, a coded word for characterization of how to understand people, women in particular, who are from certain backgrounds. Mm. Um, and so I just, I just, nasty just felt very loaded to mm. me um, in, in this um, description of the text. Um, and so I was just wanting to unpack that a little bit and, and note that. Mm. I mean, there is that way where nasty has a can be positive, right? Within, mm. like, if we think about like Janet Jackson, like, you know, right? Yeah, you know, like I'm nasty. You know, oh, you nasty? Yes. I was waiting <laughs> yes. for you to do that. <laughs> nasty. <laughs> Except in the New Yorker, it's like set up as a like a she can be nasty, but she's also sympathetic, right? So I think that right, right, so, right. Yeah, and, and, and you've got nasty separate from libidinous. Yeah. Yes. Like you know, in in the Janet Jackson sense, right. I I would kind of put a similar. Yeah. 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 I, mean, yeah. I was just gonna say in 
and I feel different about Janet Jackson singing about nastiness because she's singing about it. But this right. is the New Yorker characterizing mm -hmm. winter as nasty. And I just mm -hmm. don't appreciate it. Yes. To heck with you, New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but maybe relatedly, since we're like stuck on winter because she's so amazing. Um, I think we wanted to spend some time unpacking the title. Like, what mm -hmm. is the coldest winter ever? I don't know. What do we think that meant? Well, I, I want to jump in that, on that and kind of extend what Crystal was saying, because Crystal used the word immaculate to to describe winter, which I thought I just wrote, I was like, oh, my God, that's perfect. I just wrote it down. And I think that, you know, the coldest. Well, first of all, our name is winter and the coldest winter ever. Right. Is, you know, we can think about this moment like uh, uh, when we're thinking of the. Um, uh, the uh, God, I'm, I'm losing a word, but like the meaning, the meaning of winter in terms of like when we think about it, it's it's like the time when things are dead and then they come back to life or whatever. Um, but also like cold, like cold. If somebody's cold, that's good. That can be good, right? Like it's yeah. you'd be like, man, she or he is cold. Like that means that they are they look good or they know what they're doing or whatever. Mm -hmm. She's also cold because she's like emotionless or to, in a certain extent, like she does things that are cold emotionally because mm -hmm. she is about business. Right. So, I mean, I think there's always a sort of like um, opposite side, you know, like this kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of I'm losing words dichotomy or something. That's not the right word. Um, binary. Binary. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry. Um, I'm not drunk. I probably. <laughs> There's a there's a sort of binary, yeah. So I mean, you 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 can always sort of see, and it, and it's with her character all the way through. Um, when she does something that you probably disapprove of yourself personally, you also are like, yeah, but that's cold, you know. Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, could I do that? Like, if I think about, okay, my whole my dad's in jail, my mom's on the street, my sisters are like in in the home, like, and I'm supposed to like rebuild my life with nothing. Like you gotta be cold to do that, and she does it. Like she does whatever needs to be done. Yeah, whatever needs to be done. If you're in her way, sorry, she's the coldest winner ever. You know, so mm -hmm. I, I just love that title. I think it's just it's got there's just so much so much complexity to it. And I um I was just curious to see what Urban Dictionary would say oh, in yeah. terms of definition of cold, and it it basically listed all of the different variations you mentioned, Todd. But it also uh, has this one, which I thought is just it says cold, better than cool, to be mm. cooler than cool, the coolest level of cool. Like, yes. just like, you just, you ice. just cold, you ice. Yes. Right, exactly. That's why I love immaculate that you use, right? Cause mm. that's like, and I was thinking of, you know, that when she goes to that party and she's gonna, uh, what's this guy's name, CS or whatever? The TS, GS? Yeah. GS, GS, GS. GS. And they have like a contest yes. to see who is gonna have sex with, with GS. Mm -hmm. And she wins the contest. The contest itself is terrible, unbelievable. Yeah. I'm just yeah. out of just I can't even. But I just want to point out that the contest does not just uh, have you know tests of like physical beauty and mm -hmm. you also have to an have answers like stuff that you know, yeah. mm -hmm. right? And she knows everything. And like I love it. Some of the other women are like messing up some questions, and she's like, I know that. Because she's smart too, right? You know, right. so at but, the same time, but yes. To be fair, these were questions about television shows. What? It, you, 
You're not smart if you know stuff about TV? <laughs> no, like you can totally be smart if you know stuff about TV. How did you do that? Pop culture. I studied TV and that was my era. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew a lot of those answers. Did but... you know the answer to the dogs? You know, on the... <laughs> the name of the dogs on not. the Brady Bunch? Did, did you know that? <laughs> well, it's funny because we never see Winter watching TV, so I'm not sure. <laughs> That's how cold she is. That's how cold, That's how cold she is. She don't need to watch it. She just knows it. She just knows. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess I, you know, I brought that up, you know, because it's it, they. It's not just like she's the, she's not just she's beautiful, and everybody says it right from the very beginning. Like, remember her dad when she comes home from the hospital, being born, puts a ring on her finger because she's so you beautiful, right? And everybody can say, everybody can, <laughs> not going to stay there. It's not going to, no. But he had a guy who was going to size it till it would, right? Right. right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so there's her beauty. There's how she can, like, wear clothes, how she can work a room. So her personality. Yeah. She had her guile, you know, just like everything about her. And, you know, like I said, she's not perfect. She's not perfect. But. Man. I, yeah, I mean, like, so maybe knowing TV or trivia is not skillful or whatever, but I mean, like, when she goes to the group home, like, she sets up a whole business, right? Because she, mm -hmm. like, understands the other girls' desires, right? And right. she understands, like, what would, what they need and what they want. And she does that partly through just, like, talking to them and getting to know them. And she, like, sets herself up to be this, like, successful businesswoman in that, like, setting, right? Um, so I think I just feel like there was, like, a lot of ways in which she is, yeah, absolutely, right? Sort of this, like, very smart woman who like learns from watching others and observing others and like right and that's like a kind of skill that I think you it's actually hard to teach <laughs> right in some ways right so I think like everybody can read a book and maybe reads I mean no offense literary theory and maybe apply to a book but like I feel like that kind of smart is actually like harder to like get right I mean, I mean she's she's super smart I don't think there's any denying it, it is interesting that the novel gives us like these moments where like, you know, Midnight, for example, has books mm -hmm. that talks about how important they are to him or Sister Soldier has all those books and the file cabinets, right? And there's this, this kind of other world that like keeps on getting presented to her um, that she's unwilling to enter into, right? right. In the space of this novel. Right. And I get, so, I mean, I, I you know, I, um, I think, Winter is like a really engaging character who like I also um, just kept on waiting to see grow, right? Like I thought there were going to be some things that clicked in sooner, but in some ways, you know, like to get back to this idea of, you know, like I, I, I was, you know, mentioning earlier that I don't see redemption here, but I guess there is punishment. Like there's like towards the end of the novel, we get the whole series of kind of comeuppances, right? So Lauren steals the money that she steals from the AIDS, um, the HIV um, uh, fundraiser. Mm -hmm. She ends up with no money from that. Uh, Simone cuts her. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, then she eventually like ends up getting arrested and going to jail. So there's like this escalation, like where she ends up, um, uh, you know, the people who feel especially hurt by her, I think, Todd, I'm still thinking about that, you know, what you said, like she hurts a lot of people along the way. And most of that kind of comes back in a certain way by the end of the novel. Mm -hmm. But I, do we, I, my question is, do we always think, well, she deserves that? I mean, I think that's, for me, that's the thing. Like I, there, when she's in jail or what, all these things, when she gets cut, I mean, I think there's a way which you could you could say that 
in the sort of logic, the, the moral logic of the novel, we're supposed to think, okay, she she earned that, right? Like that's that's the comeuppance, as the, the word that you used. But as a reader, I'm like, no, no, because by again, you, I'm right, you're right. She does bad things. She hurts people. She she killed somebody. We don't know it necessarily, but if you read the sequel, but yeah. I do know it. <laughs> <laughs> but but so much stuff happens to her because of other people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I, and, I feel like I didn't read it as like a comeuppance, right? Like all the things that happened to her in terms of like, I mean, right, especially because I think in her own chapter about the when she's in jail, I mean, first of all, like all the girls that she was fighting with are in there. And she says, <laughs> me, Natalie, Zakia, Shantae, and a bunch of Brooklyn girls got a crew up in here. We got a name, a little name for ourselves. Even Simone's trying to be down with us for her own protection. She finally stopped blaming me for the death of her daughter. Or at least, you know, so she talks about that. But also then she goes down to say, everybody's got a drug-related charges stemming from their own little situations. But we wasn't nothing but the girlfriends to the ends moving weight. Sometimes we mm-hmm. move you know, So I just feel like, actually, I didn't read that as, like, a comeuppance narrative in her own, in her own um, narrative, right. at least. Right? So, so I feel like yeah. actually working that- at this idea of, like, a redemption arc. Right. No, I, I agree. Totally. Do you think that it ma- – I mean, so – if I if if I could sit down with Sister Soldier and be like, Sister Soldier, now would you do anything different with this book if you were going to write it again? Because it seems to me like one of the things, like the most important thing that she chose that may backfire, have backfired, is to have uh, Winter tell her own story. Mm. Because hmm. it's first person and she tells the story, she explains everything to us. Um, we like she's written very. Yeah. Yeah, it's very easy for us to identify with her. And so something like that, you know, when she's in jail. And and, and I also think I guess there's a, a way I can think of examples where a first person narrative, someone tells their story, but you never believe them. Mm-hmm. Um they're a, they're an unreliable narrator. I I don't think like yeah. Winter's honest with us. Mm-hmm. She tells but, us but, but I don't think she understands completely herself that may be true and i don't think she's honest with herself about the damage that she does in the world that's true that's true but i don't i don't think that as a reader that i ever felt like she lied to us about what she thinks that's fair yeah right and i feel like so many people in this world do damage to the world in much greater ways they're not honest about that right right? or they don't cop up to that right like i think that's kind of like what um you know it's like i think what's what i'm thinking about i'm like yeah right she not everything she does is a good thing right like that's not the point right like i think the point is like how she kind of understands why she has to do it but the fact that she's in this contact or in the situation to begin with right it's like speaking to these like broader his like broader structures of right? Inequity and oppression. And like the fact that she's like in this position itself, unlike lots of other people who do lots of other damage and right. Or not like actually um, like they're actually ha- they're in positions of power and doing that kind of damage. Which is all true. I mean, I, the no, if I were to talk to sister soldier and be like, so where do you think you could have changed it? I guess I'm wondering about the moments of like the group home um, or staying with sister soldier like, why are these moments, instead of being moments where the kind of like different narrative takes hold, I mean, maybe it's just because it would be a boring novel. 
Right, like I'd much rather stick yeah. with this novel where Winter, like sh the fights in her, like she's, yeah. you know, because of who she is, how she was raised, she's got this way in which she knows she has to do things. And like, if she, it might feel really false, right? Mm -hmm. For the sister soldier, like lectures to, to land. Yes. Um, in a real way. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. I totally agree. And I think that's kind of what I was thinking about earlier with, you know, the, the morality tales and things like that, yeah. right? Where it's, you know, what's going to happen and you might even expect this. Like one thing you, I guess you don't expect sister soldier to be a character, but one sister soldier shows up in the book, you're thinking, Oh, well, Sister Soldier is going to be the hero of this book, right? And it's going to convince uh, Winter to change her ways, and Winter's going to change her ways, and they're going to join together and whatever. And that does not happen. Yeah, exactly. It does not happen. And, that, and I got to be like, I want, I, I guess there's a part of me that wanted that to happen and for, for Winter to be, you know, sort of saved from the streets and all that. But there's another part of me that's like, yeah, go ahead, Winter. Like, you don't need <laughs> right. to get to give in to this just because Sister Soldier, I mean, what? Sister Soldier, I, I love about Winter is she's like analyzing Sister Soldier's game the whole time. Yeah. And she's like doing the calculations. Like she's adding this stuff up, right? And Sister Soldier's, she's her, her um, con, which Winter thinks is the con, she's like, this doesn't pay, right? Like, I mean, she, she doesn't see the, the equation working out in her favor mm -hmm. to do what or to follow Sister Soldier. She, the way she does the calculation is about like stacking dollars, <laughs> is about like looking yeah. good. It's like all those things. And she just doesn't see it with Sister Soldier. So it's like, all right, Winter was true to herself. And I got to respect that. So this is, I was going to read this earlier because I think Adriana made a point about um, kind of just like, I can't, I remember, but like schooling and kind of thinking about these other paths, right? And this is actually about the doctor who like rents or lives in the house. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. Sister Soldier said, this is 193. Um, and she says, for a surgeon, the doctor was not too hard to figure out. Just showing a little interest got her to spill her guts. At night after hour, she was easy to talk to. And then she goes on and, and she says, four years in one college, four years in another college, two years working around the clock in the hospital with no pay and then back to college and a certification for this and that. She was a medical doctor, a gynecologist, and a surgeon. By the time she looked up 12 to 15 years later, everybody was paired off. All she got was a bunch of degrees. She could fix people's bodies and brains, but she couldn't fix her own person. She couldn't repair her own personal life and wasn't going to make that mistake. And that made me laugh. Just, I mean, you know, like, yeah. I think it's like interesting to like think about what she values, but I think it was also mm -hmm. just like, yeah, right. Like there's a new, mm -hmm. Not a bad critique I mean, there in terms of like what, what it, how our system set up in a way where right. I mean, it shouldn't be that way necessarily, right? That like that doctor had to like choose between her professional life and her personal life, but that yeah. kind of worked out. Um, and the other thing, so in the interview, I guess it's an interview at the end. Sister Soul just says, um, kind of why she included herself. I thought it was clever. To, this is three hundred three. If you have our version of the book. I thought it was clever to have the protagonist Winter Santiago and the antagonist Sister Soldier in reverse positions. After all, the protagonist is supposed to not only be the principal character, the protagonist is supposed to be the leader of the cause, the one whom the reader cheers for. The fact that the reader ends up cheering resoundingly for Winter, the drug dealer's daughter, is revealing and refreshing to me. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Although she does go on to say, Maybe we should think about why we're cheering for winter. <laughs> so. I know why I'm cheering for winter. <laughs> right. 
Because she's the coldest winner ever. She's the coldest. <laughs> right. She's immaculate. She's impeccable. Yes. 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 <laughs> oh, winter. Well, in the last maybe five minutes, probably because it's my favorite word to say. What do we have to say about this being in the genre? Of genre. Urban street lit. I don't know. Uh, for how about it? Yeah, I mean, so I think um, <laughs> with this this book, if you have a copy of this book, you will see on the cover that it's sold over a million copies, which I think is a lot of copies. Actually, and um, two million copies, is that yeah. what I say? I mean, million. it's one on ours, but in the website, it's at two millions. So. Okay, so apparently this book um, is, you know, affected, has affected a lot of people in the in the over 20 years since it was published. And um, I, you know, like, there's a place for literary kind of novels, and there's a place for, you know, all these sorts of kind of stuff that gets celebrated, you know, Toni Morrison and all these sorts of people, right? I mean, that's fantastic. And and I love that stuff too. But there's, I don't know, there's something about this kind of literature, which um, sort of drops the pretense and, and kind of is more rooted in how people might sort of think about their lives, or is a kind of fantasy of the, those lives, you know, and ultimately, you know, as we've been saying over and over and over in this episode, I mean, the real draw for this novel is is Winter Santiago. I think you know that there are a lot of, well, street lit or urban lit or whatever you want to call it, has been popular for a long time. And you know, I think we need to think about the reasons why. It's sort of like, why is uh, uh what's what's the director's name uh, from Atlanta? You know, um, who does Tyler like, Perry? Tyler Perry, yeah, yeah. It's like Tyler Perry, right? People. People say, Tyler, right? People be like, but but critics would be like, Tyler Perry's movies are terribly made, and right. their plots are horrible, and you know these is just hackneyed, you know, depiction of black life, ah, blah blah, mm-hmm. all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, right? And yet, black people love it. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is, like I always thought with Tyler Perry, the people who have been critical don't understand the genre; right. they don't know that that's a genre that he's working in. And that he has been, you know, starts with plays. It's, it's you know, done on the Chitlin Circus. He take that around to churches. Yeah. People have been seeing this kind of work in, in their churches in the South for years and years and years and years. Yeah. And so when they see it on a movie or on a TV show, it looks very familiar. It's comforting. It reflects you back to yourself, right? So um, this is, you know, like you, to, again, Toni Morrison is amazing, but I don't, it doesn't always reflect you back to yourself. Like it's. I have a question, Todd. I have a yes, question please. for you. Okay. So, well, no, don't apologize. I, I guess I'm wondering if you can like maybe historicize urban fiction and street fiction just a teeny bit, because you're saying like, it's been around for a long time, but I don't think it's been around forever. So can we like, you know, kind of gesture towards like maybe the, the, the history that kind of made this genre, especially important and resonant. Yeah. I mean, I, it- I don't know. It depends on how you want to how you want to um, you know categorize it or identify it, but I mean, you can go back to at least the you know fifties, um, and certainly in the sixties. I mean, there's a there's a huge sort of wave of crime writing. Um, you know, maybe like Iceberg Slim's, you know, his his autobiography or his memoir, and okay. then all of the novels that he wrote. Okay. You got Chester Himes, 
you know, you got uh, Donald Goins. Um, Donald Goins is the is the biggest selling black author of all time. Um, you know, so the it, it's it, it gains a lot of popularity at the same time, like black exploitation films. Mm-hmm. You know, so these kinds of things become a way of like sort of reengaging with um, with black culture in the United States, right? It, it really, if you want to get down to it, African American folklore has always had figures like Winter Santiago. She's really a bad woman, like Kissy Lee or something like that, right? And, you know, so we have all kinds of bad men and bad women. And the thing that they do in African-American folklore in in that uh, tradition is they do the things that we can't do, Mm -hmm. right? They sort of mark the edge or the boundary of the possible for regular people because they are on the other side of it, right? And so we experience vicariously, for example, if you're, if you're thinking of, you know, like a Stagali or somebody like that, Stagali kills somebody for touching his Stetson hat, right? Mm-hmm. We can't do that, but he can, right? Um, the, the, the figures who fight back against the police mm-hmm. and kill them. You know, mm-hmm. like when we were doing like uh, Slim and, uh, what's that movie Queen we watched? Queen, Queen, and- Queen and Slim, right? Yeah, Queen and Slim. They kill a police. He kills a policeman in there. Um, that's a resistance against being beaten by, killed by, or arrested by the police unjustly. Mm-hmm. We can't do that, but they do it for us, and so they show us this kind of way of existing that marks the boundaries of what we can and can't do. And so, in that way, they're really uh, important. And so, in in you get in the eighties and nineties, the nineties especially, you get this huge explosion of uh, urban lit. Street lit, it's got a lot of different names. But if you went to a bookstore in the 90s, you would have saw a huge section. And I was, you know, like I, I was in grad school and there were all these authors that I had never heard of and their books were flying off the shelves. And there were not that many other black writers in that same bookstore, right? They were the ones that were being sold was the ones that were writing, the folks that were writing this kind of of literature. And what I'm guessing too is, right, like at the same time, mainstream publishing is saying, oh, black people aren't buying books, right? Like, so we're not going to like, you know, provide kind of like marketing or publicity for the few black writers we have. Yeah. There's a really interesting bifurcation that we see in the publishing industry. Right, right. There's there's a, a couple of books about the publisher in, in Los Angeles called Holloway House. And that that was um, Donald Goins' publisher. And they were kind of like a ragtag little, you know, sort of publishing house. I'm not going to say too much because I don't know. I'm not an expert on it or anything. But it was it was publishers like this who were publishing this kind of, of writing, specialty publishers, you know, in the 60s, 50s and 60s and, and into the 70s. And I suspect if you were to go and, you know, look at those shelves in the 90s, that those would have been specialty imprints and publishers who were publishing Urban Lit as well and would not have been considered in the mainstream of, of African-American literature. And were also being criticized by some mainstream Black, black authors because they thought that it sort of like, you know, diminished yeah. their... You know, the people weren't paying attention to them, like, or seeing them as connected to this, you know, very trashy portrayal. It's just, it really is. It really does line up with Tyler Perry very, very much mm-hmm. because you get, it's the biggest, the biggest critics of Tyler Perry are black people, are black directors. And Spike Lee, people like that, you know, are some of the biggest critics of Tyler Perry. And I think, like, you just have to understand. If you watch a Tyler Perry movie, movie for be, and it's a Tyler, you just you got to understand what it is. Mm-hmm. And when you understand what it is, 
it's great. <laughs> it really is. And I think I would say one one way that this kind of diverges from Tyler Perry is that I think sometimes Tyler Perry's uh, stuff has deeper, broader messages. A lot of times it's just entertainment in the sense that, you know, he's trying to tell a, a craft, a, a funny, interesting story. But sometimes there's a message or there's a handy, handed, heavy handed message. But I think I mean, I think, you, yeah, maybe that is a similarity because I was going to say that this this book, I don't think it's it's sole purpose is just to be entertaining. Like, I really think Sister Soja is trying to advise and to direct and to tell people, you know, to avoid certain actions and behaviors. Um, whereas with Tyler Perry's stuff, I mean, I don't always see that in his in his films or his work. All right. I and I think we will leave it at that. <laughs> oh, no. no. The soldier will come up in the next bit that we're going to do. <laughs> so uh, maybe we can go around and say what we're reading, listening, watching to. And Adriana, why don't we start with you? Well... <laughs> <laughs> I bought both of these books on Kindle, uh, Coldest Winter Ever and Life After Dark, and I read the wrong one first. And I kept on texting uh, the squad, uh, like, what is going on here? Oh, my God, Todd, why are we reading this? What is this novel? Um, it, it involves um, Winter uh, getting out of uh, um, jail. It, you know, she's going to be on this television show that Portia sets up for her, a reality show and she gets shot right away. So the majority of the novel, she's dead, um, or at least that's how she experiences it. She's in it. a purgatory. She keeps on um, having sex with demons and turning into animals. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, she turns into a rat once, into a, a dog, into a snake. See, she, that's just reflecting our life back on her. <laughs> It does. It actually does. Like, because, you know, she, at some point, right, she comes face to face with this, you know, she goes into this booth, which is kind of like a confessional and it's to see if she can get into the afterlife. And they're like, but you know, did you do this? And they show her the scene where she knocked over the old woman with the sock full of rocks and they're, and she's like, I, you know, I didn't kill her. And they're like, mm, she, you did. She was taken away and she died. And she's like, what? But I didn't know. And she gets introduced to her unborn children, um, who in this novel she aborts. Uh, but in life after, in, after death, they become a really powerful characters who try to guide her to the right side. Wow. I'm loving the look on Crystal's face, face right now. I'm <laughs> she might be frozen, but yeah. Yeah, she might be frozen. <laughs> Okay. But she did have that look at some point when she was talking. Yeah, it was it was it was a roller coaster. She just has a look of like what? <laughs> okay, yeah. so what do you say? Would you recommend that readers read it? I mean, look, I have a lot to talk about. Someone has to read this so that I can talk to that person about it. I will read it. Yeah, I will read it. If any of you listeners read it, please let them know so you can have that conversation with them. Yes. All right. Maybe we could have like a separate sort of like, you know, social media kind of thing. Conversation about life after. Yeah. Where we wrap with our fans. Yeah. Do that. Awesome. Thank you. Todd, what have you been up to? Okay. So I've been extremely busy. And I read reread this book at the last minute. So I don't have a new book that I'm reading, but apparently I'm going to be reading Life After Death. Um, but I thought I would mention um, the uh, television show Them, which is uh, currently showing on the uh, Evil Empire. And uh, um, 
I so I only watched one episode of it, and that episode was really very scary, but also very exploitative, mm-hmm. and felt kind of icky. And that's not the proper word, but that's the word I have right now. Yeah, yeah. It felt icky. I mean, it felt it felt like it was for it felt like it was for a white audience, really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it starts so the the it's a uh, it's a, one of those anthology shows. So I think this is going to be one season about this black family that moves um, from the south to L.A. Yeah. They buy a house in um, in a white neighborhood in Watts in the 1950s, I think it is. And um, the white neighborhood doesn't want them to move in. And like when they're first on the road, they're sort of like in their car and they're driving Um, on the screen comes some text, which says, you know, like in the 1940s and fifties, many black families moved from the South to the North and also to LA and what was called the great migration. So it feels like, like, I think most black people probably know that. Like, so it feels like it's for that's for a white a white audience that wouldn't know, and it's sort of like a white audience that wouldn't know about the Great Migration at this point. Is like, well, where have you been? Yeah, I mean, there are many many sources for that information, and it just like it starts with this weird flashback that I think is going to be terrible. So it's like the mother. It's in their house uh, where in their, I think, I think it's like Louisiana or something like that. And this white woman comes up and she's like singing some racist, you know, minstrel tune or something like that. And she, I don't know, it all seems bad. And I think it's going to very bad stuff that I don't want to see. Okay. And then I read reviews of it and the reviews are mostly horrible. Like the, the reviews that black people wrote, are like this is torture porn this is horrible stuff this don't do not watch this show so i watched the one and while i didn't quite feel like that way after one episode like oh my god don't ever watch any more of this um i did say like my partner and i were watching it and um i was like wow i don't feel good after watching that do we want to watch another one and she's like well maybe and then we just never did so um you were like definitely maybe no I feel like ha- having read those reviews that I could understand. Yes. Like I, my feeling was not like, Oh, well I disagree with that. It was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Okay. I could definitely see that. And then what they said was coming on in further episodes, yeah. you know, cause the house they move into is haunted and it's haunted by like Jim Crow or something like that. Yeah. And like, or something, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> who needs yeah, that? I don't, exactly. Yeah. Can I just yeah. say, I know this, this is too, too long and we're going too long and all that stuff. But I just want to say that uh, the tendency, you know, the trend over the last few years of like taking racism and then turning it into horror, there are lots of benefits to that. But also we need to recognize that it in and of itself was horror. Mm -hmm. I don't really need ghosts Mm -hmm. to know that Jim Crow was was terrible and, and was... Um, very was horror in and of itself and so i feel that way a lot of times i mean i know people love a lot of those movies and a lot of those shows but there are some times when i'm sort of like you know what the horror is in being black in the south or the horror can sometimes be in being black in the twin cities right in 2021 right right we don't need any we don't need any metaphors or any figuratism or yeah literally horror Mm -hmm. 
That's um, what I'm saying. Yeah. Thanks, Dad. Um, I think on our website we do say what we're recommending, but in this case, it's just what we're watching and like. So maybe Todd doesn't actually recommend. That is a negative recommendation. <laughs> uh, Crystal, do you want to say anything about what you've been reading, eating, sleeping, whatever? Yeah, I. You know, I've just been uh, relaxing, giving my mind a break. Woo! So, That's always good. Yes. I love that. Um, yes. I, I yes. just started Mariam Kaba's We Do This Till We Free Us. And uh, in the preview, I just, I love this sort of um, quote. So I'm going to read that and then end. So it says, as, they, as she states, abolitionism is not a politics mediated by emotional responses. Or as we initially wanted to title this piece, abolition is not about your fucking feelings. <laughs> I think that was like a really good way to like talk about what this project of abolition is about. Um, so, okay. So that was our show. And next book we're going to read is The Secret Life of Church Ladies by Disha Filia. I hope I'm saying that right. And we're excited because it's a set of short stories, which I don't think we've done in a while. So we look forward to that. Mm-hmm. As always, you can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, all the places where you can find podcasts. And please keep getting those vaccinations, wearing those masks, washing those hands, keeping those six feet away. And for now, mostly staying home. Thank you. And sending you all big virtual hugs. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye. This has been another brand new episode of The Drip recorded remotely in Minnesota from St. Paul, Minneapolis, and Northfield, and Washington, D.C. The show is written, produced, and directed by Anita Chikator, Adriana Estel, Crystal Moten, and me, Todd Lawrence. We are the All Spoilers Collective. Special thanks to Lord Jordan X of Kansas City, Missouri for our theme music. We'll be back in about three weeks with a new episode on Disha Filia's short story collection, The Secret Life of Church Ladies, which I sent a copy of to my mother because today is Mother's Day. Best wishes to all those mothers out there. We love you so very much. And until next time, please take care of yourselves and look after each other. Peace. Peace.